What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed? What would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of Global Swedish Design and stationery brand Kiki K, and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people to dream. Before I started Kiki K, I had a dream that I could bring Swedish design to the world to create beautiful products that bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to help you dream big. I want to create a global movement to inspire 101 million dreamers to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of the world's most inspiring people, exploring the powerful impact that dreaming has had on their lives. We'll be diving deep into the power of dreaming with real insights and ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode. This week I'm back with another super inspiring guest and his name is Paul Callaghan. Paul is the author of The Dreaming Path and with a title like that I of course had to pick up his book and I absolutely loved it. There is so much wisdom in this book and we have the privilege to have Paul on the podcast today. Paul Calgan is an Aboriginal man belonging to the land of Warimi people, located on the coast of New South Wales, just north of Newcastle. For many years, he has held senior executive positions in Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal related service areas, but eventually his desire to focus on community and individual well-being compelled him to start his own business. In addition to consultancy work, Paul is a motivational speaker, a storyteller, a dancer and an author. Paul's passion are driven by his belief in the power of story to create a better world. And I am sure that you'll be super, super inspired after listening to this. So let's get right into it. Welcome, Paul. I am so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the yarn. Before we get started, did you have a dream as a child, something you wanted to do, to have or become? Well, it's really interesting you would ask that because I did have a dream when I was a child and then once I went into the school system, the dream was kind of reshaped and I thought it was my dream, but it wasn't. And then as I got older, it took me a a lot of time and a lot of heartache to reestablish my dream. And so... When I was a child, my dream was that I wanted to live in a world where everyone was happy and contented and that I could heal people in some way. That was my dream. And you have in so many ways. And I want to talk a little bit about your journey before we actually start talking about the book. But if there was one word that could describe what I felt after reading your book for the first time was hope. The way you describe the Aboriginal culture, because I, I grew up in Sweden and been living in Australia for a long time, but I don't know much about the culture, which gave me such an insight and gave me so much hope if we can take more of that into kind of the Western world. But I would love for you to share a little bit about your journey. We have listeners from all over the world, so a lot of people will, may not have heard about you or your book yet. All right. So in terms of my journey, I'm an Aboriginal person of Waramai country, so I'm from the Gamapangal clan of Waramai country and we speak Gatung language. And so throughout Australia we have many, many different languages and our language is in some ways how we connect to our country and as Aboriginal people we connect very closely to our country. And I grew up in a very small town called Karua and Karua, like many other places throughout Australia, had an Aboriginal mission where Aboriginal people were herded together and taken from their normal way of life and placed into what virtually were concentration camps. So my mother grew up on Cruel Mission where she was surrounded by a large wooden wall with a gate that she wasn't allowed to 
pass through without the permission of a white manager. Mum grew up there. My dad is non-Aboriginal and he met mum over many years because he used to deliver eggs to the mission because Aboriginal people for a very long time weren't able to go and harvest their own food. They had to eat whatever they were given, which in most instances was flour and very little meat and very little vegetable, but tea and very little else really. And so my dad's non-Aboriginal, but he always said, how come you're so connected to your Aboriginal culture? And I said, that's where I grew up. I grew up on the mission every morning. I was there with my mum. And I found that's where I felt a lot of acceptance because I grew up with my people. So as I grew up, I was the, the first in our area to go to Year 12. I matriculated to all universities in in Australia, and I was very keen to go to university. I matriculated in the top 10% of the state. But when I saw a non-Aboriginal career guidance counsellor, the counsellor told me I wasn't smart enough to go to uni and that I would struggle and probably fail. So he talked me out of it. So I went to TAFE, which is our vocational institution of learning in Australia, and I became a surveyor. And then when the work dried up, I became a draftsman. And then in my early 30s, I undertook a degree in commerce where I majored in accounting because I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do a degree. There was no other reason. I had no particular interest in commerce or accounting at all, but it gave me a good insight into my perceptions of the Western economic system and how I thought a lot of behaviours throughout the world were driven by greed and insular thinking. And by studying accounting and eventually being a lecturer in economics, it gave me an understanding of how that works and how many are marginalised and miss out on what the world has to provide. And during that time, I worked at a university in marketing. And in some ways, I, I was living everyone's dream. I had a, a house with water views. I had three young children, a wonderful wife, three qualifications and a good job. But with the birth of our third son, my wife became very sick and, and it became difficult and I got very tired. and. I found that something wasn't quite right in the workplace and that culminated on my 35th birthday on the 28th of September in 1995, me collapsing with a nervous breakdown. And as I tried to find my way through that, I struggled and I had suicidal ideation and I curled up in a bed for three months, not quite knowing what to do, even though I had reached out to the mental health system and tried to heal myself throughout that process. And it ended up with me walking down a cul-de-sac one day to a place where I was going to commit suicide and as I was about to do it a thought came to me that maybe I don't need to listen to the experts that maybe I can prove the labels wrong and heal myself and then use my experience to help others who might find themselves in that dark place and so that's what I decided to do but I still hadn't found the answer but for a couple of years, I read a lot of self-help books. I read a lot of books on spirituality. And I kind of hoped that one day I would find someone who could teach me all about Aboriginal spirituality, even though I'd been told that it was dead and buried on the east coast of New South Wales and I'd never be able to access that learning. But I'm glad to say the naysayers were wrong. And a few years into my healing process, I was invited bush and I was shown culture. And I'm pleased to say that over many decades of me learning and being given that culture from not only the East Coast, but from across Australia, I was given permission to write this book and to share my learning with others because the learning I was given from Aboriginal culture that is the world's oldest living culture, it not only helped me heal, it's got values and it's got insights that can be used by anybody and everybody, not only in Australia, but throughout the world because it is just profound and it is inherently useful in the contemporary world. And I would say that it's probably more important in the world we now are living in than it ever has been, because it gives us some direction in what is a world so full of noise and competing priorities in terms of what the world is trying to tell us to do. And so when I reflected, the reason I had my breakdown was I'd spent my life trying to be all things to all people at all times, which meant that I was never walking my own footsteps, that I was always trying to please other people. 
And so I was not following my dream at all. I'd forgotten my dream of, of being a healer and being a, a part of a world of happiness and contentment. And I'd become a contributor to a world of busyness where we isolated and disconnected in order to try and achieve power and materiality and, and money and things that seemed really important. But when I look back, were the wrong things for me to focus on. Mm, what a story and thank you for sharing that and congratulations on your book I absolutely love it me being all about dreaming the the title definitely caught my eye but also after reading it absolutely loved it there are so many amazing messages in there and I absolutely love the message called the message on the first page which is why are you all so busy but doing so little why do you try so hard to get things you don't really need why do you see happiness as such a hard thing to achieve? Why don't you be content with what you have been given? What you really need is all around you, but you don't see it. You have all lost your way. You have forgotten who you are. You are not living your truth. I absolutely love that. And I would love you to share with our listeners because I'm all about inspiring people to live their dream life, whatever that is for them. And so many people are living other people's dreams. So the teachers and the parents or peers. So how can we start living our own truth? Well, thank you for reading that quote. And I'm really, really pleased that you like it. And we are coming from the same place. It is important to dream. And quite often we don't dream anymore. As we hit adolescence, we kind of give up on the dream. But also if we continue to dream, quite often it's the wrong dream. We're given all these messages when we're quite young and unable to filter of what success should look like. And rather than dream in a very creative and poetic and fantasy-driven way, we start to get grounded far too quickly. I, I see kids in the school system already starting to compete when they're in primary school and then they are into high school. And, and this is a problem with the Western world. It is a world of battle and competition where we fight each other. So in primary school, we're told that we need to compete and be the top of the class. And then we go to high school and we're competing to get the best grades to get into the university degree that we're told we must do in order to be successful and then we are competing with each other to get a job in what is called a competitive merit-based selection process and then we try and get a job and then we're competing to try and get up the hierarchy and then we're actually located in our jobs in a model throughout the world called the competitive market which is driven by competition as well so if you think about that from the minute we're awake to the minute we're asleep we're kind of fighting everyone around us and it's the total opposite to the aboriginal way of thinking and the aboriginal way of thinking we have all that we need so rather than fight each other why don't we come together and share with each other because there is plenty and i've just completed my phd and my phd part of that research was showing that for the world of 7.7 .7 billion people there are many many resources to satisfy all of us if we're able to somehow figure out a way to share that rather than hide it. So going back to the question, Christina, how the old people describe this is when we leave this world behind, all we leave behind is our story. So make it the best story possible. And so the question is, are we living the best story possible? And my observation is we might be thinking we're living the best story possible and people certainly try really, really hard to live the best story possible. I know I did. We try and be the best father, the best mother, the best sister, the best brother, the best cousin, the best neighbour, the best work colleague, the best friend. We try to be all those things, but quite often without thinking about ourselves. And so instead of people living a good story, what I see are people living very busy stories. And the thing that, that people I like to encourage them to think about is what is my story? What is my story? And this comes back to the title of the book, which is The Dreaming Path. And the dreaming isn't an Aboriginal word. It was captured by a, an observer of Aboriginal practice and philosophy. So the dreaming in my language is the Nurumpa. And what the Nurumpa means in English is I must care for my place and all things in my place. And so the way the dreaming path or the Nurumpa kind of functions in terms of our philosophy is that every one of us is conceived in love, every one of us is born in love, every one of us lives in love and is surrounded by love, and when our time has come, we go back to love. So in the Aboriginal way of thinking, we are surrounded by love, 
And from when traditionally for 60,000 years, from when we were born, we were taught all the things we needed to know that would enable us to care for our place and all things in our place. And so the Dreaming Path says that we're all born with this really big purpose of caring for our place and all things in our place. But within that bigger picture, every one of us has very, very unique and special footprints. And each one of us is to walk those footsteps that we're meant to. So some of us might be nurses, some of us might be psychologists, some of us might be chocolate makers, which is really great. Some of us might be engineers. Some of us will be teachers. That has always been the way. And so the old people would watch the children and observe their unique skills and talents. And instead of trying to reshape those kids, they'd say, let's build on what that child has and enable them to walk their footsteps in a way where they can be unique, but also part of this bigger, beautiful tapestry of caring for our place and all things in our place. So for people listening, the first step of finding the path of contentment, and our old people say, if if we aren't walking our footsteps and if our footsteps don't align, with caring for our place and all things in our place, then we aren't on a path of contentment. So the way to think about that is imagine that you're 100 years old and you're sitting at your birthday party and you're listening to people talk about you and they're giving formal speeches about your life and they're describing your story. How would you like them to describe you? What would you like your story to read? What are the chapters? What are the key bits? And you'll find if you think about those key chapters, and I've done this kind of exercise with a lot of people from all sorts of social demographics. Most people will say, I want to be seen and known as a kind person, as a good person, as a caring person, as a giving person, as a person who had time for people, as a person who could listen. They talk about all those things. They don't drill down into the granular. They don't talk about how many new cars they had. They don't talk about my successes measured by how many toilets I had in my big house. They don't talk about things like that. They talk about emotional connection and legacy that is long-lasting in terms of relationships. Because for Aboriginal people, our whole system and our whole way of measuring success is about the depth and richness of our relationships with each other and with the land itself. So I'd, I'd say to people, in terms of living a good story, have to think about when I'm 100, what are the things that I really would like people to define me by And then look at the now and say, okay, am I on that path to achieving that or am I a little bit away from that path? In which case, what do I need to do to get me onto that path of what my story needs to read? Mm. I know that you had your share of challenges, obviously your breakdown, which I think you explain as your breakthrough and also the passing of your brother. So I know that so many people listening are going through so many different challenges, anything from what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, sickness and things changing and losing jobs and businesses, etc. So I wonder if you could give everyone who is listening a little tip on how to get through challenging times. Like everybody, I've been through my challenges, no less than anyone else. And there are certain things that are just so horrific that I can't even begin to think how you get through them. So my heart and my prayers continually go to the Ukraine and my brothers and sisters there. You can hear the emotion in my voice because we are all brothers and sisters and to see anyone in pain is actually a breakage of the law. The law is the way we describe the dreaming path. So the law is about the values and systems and knowledge of how we live our lives. And we talk about breaking the law. That's when we're not following those values. And part of understanding the law is that we care for our place and all things in our place. And another way to understand that is the Aboriginal definition of health and well-being is that no one person can be well if everybody isn't well and if the land isn't well. So if there is one person unwell, then we're all unwell because we're all connected. So if you think about that globally, whilst there ever is anyone suffering, we can't be well. And so traditionally, Aboriginal people shared and united so that we could all be well, and then we made sure the land itself was well. And that's something for Australians to think about in terms of, in some ways, non-Aboriginal Australia assesses Aboriginal people as being disadvantaged, and we certainly are socioeconomically. But on the flip side, Aboriginal people have our culture and our spirituality. And in some ways, I view non-Aboriginal Australia as being disadvantaged because they don't have the connection to that that we would like them to. And so when we share culture, it's in a space of giving where we can all be together 
and all come together and be united and support well-being nationally, but then also internationally. And that's not to say that we don't respect other cultures. Our way of being is there to sit alongside all those other beautiful cultures in the world. And that kind of really confuses Western ways of thinking who always, in some ways, the scientific and evidence-based and engineering way of thinking says there must be one answer. And we say, no, 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 there can be five different ways to tell a story and they're all beautiful. And even though they might seem to contradict we will say they're all true. And so in terms of spirituality and connection, our old people will say, but can we use that story and, and we'll share that because that will enable us all to achieve well-being. So across the world, there's this wonderful opportunity to learn and grow and, and achieve that. But going back to the question of, of getting through the hard times, I call them the, the storms, the storms of life. And certainly I've had my share I wish I could say my breakdown was my only storm and that did become my breakthrough and I give thanks and gratitude for having come through it, but a lot of us don't and if I can help people to avoid where I I went, I certainly would like to help. But then when I rebuilt myself, I established a career in TAFE and I kept on getting promotions until I ended up being a CEO with 23,000 students and I ran a $60 million budget and we were voted the best Institute in New South Wales and top three in Australia in my third year. So that was wonderful. And then I got tapped on the shoulder to go into an even more senior position in Aboriginal housing where I could help my own people. And I thought that would be great, but it turned out a disaster. I just didn't fit in with the government culture at the time. And I had people who said they wanted to get rid of me and the writing was on the wall because they just didn't like the way I thought in terms of holistic healing. So effectively... In 2014, after rebuilding myself from my breakdown, I lost my career and I had no job and was virtually unemployable. And my wife and I had a large mortgage and we were living in the city and we didn't really know what to do because I'd started my own business, but it really wasn't taking off. And so we moved back to the country just out of faith. We had no money and a huge mortgage and we decided, okay, if that happens, we'll just sell our house and we'll start all over again. So that was that was a storm that came. And then the loss of my brother was the biggest storm that I'll never really recover from. I was there when he passed. He died of lung cancer. And I kissed him on the forehead as he went. And I miss him every day. And my thoughts go out to anyone listening to this podcast in terms of, of those losses. We can't really heal from that, but we can learn from those things. And then not that long ago, my youngest son was using an electrical saw to make some cultural boomerangs and I was watching him and I thought, wow, it's lovely to see him so happy, but that's such a dangerous thing. And I thought, no, that's just the dad being overly protective. And I walked away and then I heard the scream. He had almost severed his hand. He'd cut through all the bones. He'd cut through all his sinews and his hand was flopping around like a dead fish with just a little bit of flesh and skin. And that was horrific. And as I drove him to the hospital, we talked about it and we didn't think he'd ever have his hand again. But the magnificence of our medical system was that they sewed it all back on and he has 90% use of his hand and I give thanks every day for that. And when he was in recovery six months later, the surgeon told me they called him close call because he was two millimetres from dying in front of me and bleeding out. Not for that to end because I lived on 100 acres. My mother was helping me connect a slasher to my tractor not that long ago and as she connected it the tractor jumped with me driving and it had cut a thumb off so that wasn't a very good day at all as I watched my mum crying and I was the cause of it and then only last year in the midst of COVID I had deep vein thrombosis where the doctor told me to get an ambulance to not walk and I could drop dead in any 10 seconds so they're just some of the storms what I've learned from these storms but is my faith keeps me going and and my faith is that These things are happening for a reason and sometimes they aren't what I would like and some of them are really, really tough. But I always go, okay, this is happening. What can I take from this? So with my nervous breakdown, that was the most magnificent thing ever because when I was recovering, what I really aimed for because I was in such a dark place, I just wanted to get back to being the old me where I could laugh and be happy. But what I learned was the old me wasn't the real me. And so I actually went way past the old me and I became the real me. And that was just the biggest blessing. And not only do I laugh, but I cry and I empathize and I choose and I own every day of my life. And I give thanks for that. 
So my breakdown was a breakthrough. The loss of my career enabled me to explore another part of my life. So now I have a successful consultancy where I do a lot of work and my son's come on board, my eldest son, and he's wonderful at what we do. And we do a lot of work in Aboriginal service delivery, particularly health and mental health. And I know we're changing lives in a good way. And if someone would have said to me 10 years ago that I was going to have a successful consultancy, have a PhD, have a, have a book published with another one coming out in 12 months' time for nine-year-olds and also two novels about to come out, I would say no way in the world. So my loss of career really pointed me in the direction where I was meant to go. The loss of my brother, that's a, a void that I can never fill, but it did give me an appreciation of how special life is and how when we're facing hard times, we need to be there for each other because we just don't know how much time we've got. So it really gave me a greater understanding of empathy and caring for everybody that is around me and sharing our story. When my son severed his hand, that was horrific, but it gave me gratitude for the magnificence of our Western medical system. So sometimes when people hear me talk or read my books, they'll go, oh, look, what do you want about go back to the Stone Age and live in your cave then and be without power. Now, I'm not saying that. We're in a contemporary world where there are a lot of magnificent things. And I asked an elder one day, I said, Uncle, what do you like about the modern world? And he said, oh, brother, he said, I love hot water. He said, hot water's the bomb. So there are lots of great things in this Western world. So what I talk about is, is bridging the two, and so two worlds together. The Western world can learn a lot from our ancient ways, and there are certainly lots of beautiful things in the Western world as well. When my mother severed a finger, what I learned from that was the graciousness and beauty of our elders, because as I drove mum to hospital, she just said to me quite calmly, she said, I'm so glad this happened to me and not you. And it just gave me a whole insight into selflessness. And when I had the deep vein thrombosis, what I was really thankful for there was that I had my wife to drive me to the hospital because the ambulance couldn't get me there. But once I got to the hospital, it was phenomenal. I was, I was inside and treated within 10 minutes. And then I was given a lot of nurture and support. And even though it took me six months to recover, in the first two months in that downtime, I actually wrote this book called The Dreaming Path. So it actually forced me to be idle for a little while and I was able to really use that time to do something incredibly productive. So what I talk about when facing storms is we don't know when storms are coming in our life. Sometimes we do, but quite often they'll come out of the blue. And if we imagine we were a big tree sitting on a mountain and a big storm was coming, we'd go, well, I'm an ancient tree. I'm, I've seen storms come and go. I'm not frightened of this storm. But then we suddenly notice it's ripping trees just like ourselves out of the ground. And I go, oh, my goodness me, I've never seen anything like this. And I look down at my roots and I go, oh, my roots are only shallow. I don't think I can withstand this. And then if we tense ourselves up, we can get ripped out of the ground, but also we can get snapped in half if we, if we tense ourselves up in facing the storm. So what I, what I say to people is have a think about those roots and what is it you need to put deep into the ground. And for Aboriginal people, our roots are our love for country, but also the values of love, respect, humility and always share. And if you think about life, if things are going to be tough, have a think about Am I being loving? Am I being respectful? Am I being humble? And, and do I share? Because you'll find one of those things may well be missing in life. And if you get those things right, you'll have really deep roots. But then when these storms come, it's about flow. So bend, bend with the wind so you don't break. And eventually the storm will pass. And so don't fight the storm, just flow with the storm and just see what it has there for you. And then when the storm is gone, you can dust yourself off. It might have got rid of a few dead branches, but then you can say, okay, that storm's cleaned me up. What do I need to repair? Do I need to put more roots down? What can I do with this? What have I learned from the storm? And so you'll find if you look at life that way, you can change your life from one of being driven by fear to one of curiosity. And if you change your life to one of curiosity, you'll find that life will have all these treasures in every day for you to harvest. Mm. I'm all for seeing the silver linings, even though when you're in the middle of the storm, you can't quite see it and <laughs> and you just need to do whatever needs to be done to kind of get through it. But when I was going through some challenging times the last couple of years, I was just so grateful that I've done so much work on myself and also read so many books on how to go through challenging times. 
I just did a talk this morning and I got the question why I'm so positive because I was talking through the challenges that I had with our business the last couple of years. And hindsight is, of course, a wonderful thing, but often through those breakthrough comes sometimes even better things. And I think if you see it as you're growing and evolving to the next version of you, then every storm has some silver linings. Yes, and the way the old people talk about that, they say, if you come to me knowing everything, I can give you nothing. But if you come to me knowing nothing, I can give you everything. So what that's about is a metaphor of empty the mind and go into each day going, I know a little bit, but not a lot really. And gee, what can I learn today? And the old people also, they kind of have a smile whenever we're facing challenges. And they say, oh, yeah, so you're ready for growth. And you go, what? And they say, yeah, when a challenge comes, it's because the old spirits, they, they know that you're ready for this challenge and that you've got the skills inside to manage this challenge. And once you get through it, when you come out of the other side, you won't be the old you. You'll be this new you where you've grown and you've gone to that next level of, of who you are. And in some ways, you could argue it's a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy when you're going up the hierarchy and you're starting to self-actualize. So the old people say challenges are sometimes good things and they're to be embraced. And so those of us that do follow the law, we accept that. We go, okay, this is the challenging week. So rather than be angry about it, I'll face it and I'll have a look at it and I'll see what I can learn from it and eventually I'll get through it and when I do I'll look back and go wow I'm glad that happened because I'd either forgotten something in terms of my lessons or I'd learned something new that I can share with others and help them and and we all grow then together as individuals but also community and and that's something that I see really missing in Australia we look at at Facebook and we look at the internet and we we look at technology and the view is that we've never had more information but information isn't necessarily knowledge and knowledge isn't necessarily wisdom it's only when we we use the knowledge to help each other that it becomes wisdom and rather than uniting too often this technology is creating silos where we're hiding in our own spaces either in our rooms in our houses or in our heads i mean when i travel to sydney on very rare occasions on a train I just watch the people at the train station and the number of people with their head down on their telephones in the train itself rather than sharing story and getting to know each other is phenomenal and I'm sure that's pretty much something happening throughout the Western world where the mobile phones are a pandemic of sorts in their own way and I don't want to disrespect those that have been affected by COVID but we've got this other infection of disconnect where we aren't looking out for each other and we're not caring for each other and if we go back to the law I care for my place and all things in my place. And we did that throughout Australia for tens of thousands of years. That's why we had so many languages. It shows that we were connected and respectful and and united and loving because if we were warlike, we would have conquered and one language would have been throughout the nation, but it wasn't. We shared and we respected and we celebrated and we commemorated and we listened and we learned from each other. And so we respected diversity, but underpinning the diversity was this common purpose of caring for each other and the country itself. And that's something we could all learn across the world, really, about how do we care for each other? How do we come together, even though we have diversity, but underpinning the diversity, how do we care for each other with this universal love and truth, where we do look after each other and and turn around global warming, which is chapter eight in the book in terms of leadership, so that we do leave a world for our young ones where they can look back and say we're thankful for our forefathers rather than angry and regretful. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Actually, let's talk about gratitude. I'm practicing gratitude daily and I often say, similar to you, I'm so grateful just to be alive and um, often people laugh when I say that, but I truly am because not everyone is alive that would love to be here for certain reasons or were never born. So I'm always grateful to be alive. And I love the way you explain in the book, when you see a task as a chore and instead see it as an opportunity to practice goodwill, gratitude and love, I would love you to share that because that just really got me thinking about all the mundane cause or tasks, whatever you want to call them, that sometimes I certainly get frustrated because I don't always want to do, want to do them. But it's, since I read this book, I kind of really try to put that more into, not perfectly, absolutely not. And I remember I went to Africa, to Zimbabwe a few years ago and seeing how they live there, I made myself two promises. One that I definitely kept, one that I'm still working on. And the first one is because we take for granted the vegetables 
I love healthy food. So, you know, I get really excited when I see vegetables and knowing that not everyone have the privilege to have that. Every time I walk in, we have a little local fruit and vegetable store um, where I live. And every time I walk in there, I'm super, super grateful. So I kept that one. But the other one is I also promised myself the mundane task of everyday cooking isn't always, I love cooking, but not always, you know, in the hurry to feed kids uh, on, you know, within a certain amount of time. And that one I sometimes struggle with, but I often would just be grateful to have food. And I know that's the case in the Western world as well, not just in Africa and other places. So um, I would love for you to share a little bit how we can change that mindset from, you know, the mundane chores and tasks to practicing gratitude and love. It's not rocket science, really. I mean, the word chore is a chore. So if we see things as a chore, then it's going to be a chore, isn't it? For me to heal, I, I read a lot on the brain's physiology and there was no way in the world I'm a clinician or a practitioner, but I wanted to know what this thing inside my head was doing to me. And so I got to understand how the brain does look at negative things because negative things are dangerous and can kill us historically, whereas things that give us euphoria won't necessarily save our life. They just make us happy. So the brain's always scanning for negative things. So the first thing to understand is that our brain has this bias and, and it will start looking for negative things. So that's okay. It's about understanding that that's the way our brain is wired. So then you have to actually work on it and be and be disciplined. But if you do work on the way you see things, you will reshape the way you view the world. And part of research into our value systems, the research says that we're driven by our relationships rather than material things, which is the difference between the Western and Aboriginal world. But another thing between the Western and Aboriginal world that differs is that Aboriginal people are, are beers, whereas the Western world are categorised as doers. So the Western world is always future-focused about how we must be harder, stronger, faster and do things better, whereas the Aboriginal world is, okay, whatever I've got now, I'll have gratitude for it, which is kind of really dangerous for us because when the research is done in, on things such as the happiness index, people come out and they interview Aboriginal people and say, how are you going? And, and our mob will say, we're good. And they mean it because we are good. And the way the old people describe it is, we were locked up on missions and we were treated like dogs when we were thrown a bone with no meat, but our mob would just munch on it and say, this is good, we're happy. And when I researched my PhD, I asked my mum, how have you felt and experienced racism? She said, oh, no, not really. And my dad, as I said, is not Aboriginal. He's seen a lot of it. And so a lot of my experiential research from those two was from dad. He said, I saw it all the time. And he said, I was forever getting into fights because it wasn't right. And so mum viewed the world in a very different way because that's the way Aboriginal people see things. And so mum told me, she said, oh, we only got meat once a month, but she said it was a really little bit, but oh, it was so yummy. So mum harvested the positive and still does. She still does. When she cut her thumb off, when we took her into the hospital, the nurses and support staff were wonderful. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry, Carol, this is so bad. She said, no, she said, this is nothing compared to losing a son. So she has that wired within her. And so actual people I've noticed whenever I'm with mob, we're always laughing or we're always happy. That is, in one sense, you could argue it's our way of coping with the trauma that's been imposed upon us, and that's true. But also, historically, it's part of our spiritual practice to walk every step in country, every day giving thanks for what is around us, because every day was a ceremony of gratitude. Every day, rather than be driven by the clock, we'd be driven by what country told us in terms of where the food would be. And so you'd follow that path through that song and storyline of where the food would be and give thanks. So there would be a ceremony if there was a fruit coming out that day and there'd be a dance and there'd be a story of giving thanks that the kids would participate in. As you were cooking, there'd be a song for thanks. So everything was about giving thanks. And so something that's in the book I'm sure you read, and I give it to people when I do workshops, is homework. And so I'll challenge anyone listening to this podcast, here is some homework and, and please be open to it because you'll find it could change your life. Every night for, say, 14 days, for two weeks, every night, contact someone and talk to them. So it could be someone you live with, it could be a partner or it could be a friend. But every night for 10 to 15 minutes, contact that other person and share with each other all the good things that have happened that day. I call them the 10 out of 10 moments. Share with the other person everything that's been good about that day. If you do that over two weeks, I can promise you what will happen is not only will you feel better that night and, and, and go to sleep feeling pretty kind of happy, 
but you'll start seeing those positive things as they show themselves in real time during the day because your brain will be saying to look for them and you'll go, oh, yeah, there's another one. I'll harvest that. I'll put that in my memory bank so I can share it tonight. And if you do that, you'll find over a period of weeks, you'll start noticing all the good things. And as you notice the good things, it puts the negative things into perspective. So when a negative thing comes, which it will, in any given time, in any given day, because that's what happens, you'll find that you'll have a greater resilience because you'll go, well, that's not real good, but hey, look at that beautiful thing over there, wow. And an example, I I walk three or four times a day, even though I work from home, I split my day up and I walk for 25 minutes every two hours. And this morning, I noticed the most beautiful hibiscus pink flower just down the road where I thought, okay, I'm gonna come back and photograph that. And so my phone has lots of photographs of all sorts of beautiful things that I see. And sometimes they're little things. Sometimes it might be a little thing like a lady beetle when you look at how it has such beautiful symmetry. Or it could be a sunset. It could be the sound of a child laughing. It could be something really funny. Like I remember years ago, I did something and tripped over and I just laughed at how silly I'd been for not watching out for the trip hazard where I went, okay, I'll learn from that. So if you get those 10 out of 10s in your mind, you'll find that they very rarely cost a lot of money and they're usually spontaneous. So The fact that they're around you and they're free means that there's literally hundreds of things every day that you can give gratitude for, including I love going to the supermarket with my wife and I love shopping because I just have gratitude for the wonderful foodstuffs that we get in a supermarket, particularly in Australia. I also love cooking and I certainly love eating. I love taste. And so in the book, I have the tense exercise, which is connecting with our senses. And T stands for tongue and that's our taste. And then E stands for eyes. N stands for nose, S stands for skin, and E stands for ears. And if we connect with the world around us, with our tongue, with our taste, with our eyes, with our smell, with what we feel on our skin and with our ears, there's literally thousands of things every day that are just marvellous, including a light breeze that we've got in Australia at the moment on a beautiful autumn afternoon. Mm, thank you so much for sharing. I absolutely love it. And it's funny that you were asking your uncle about what he was grateful for. I thought of that same this morning because we're quite cold down <laughs> this morning in Melbourne and um, I was very grateful for hot water. And I actually start every day when I wake up by f- five deep breath and then I always think about what I'm grateful for and it's never ending because a lot of people say well it's the same thing but when you start looking and you know taking some of your examples in your book and what you just said you can go on forever there's so much to be grateful for I really resonated with connected with country in your book and I walk daily in nature and I grew up in Sweden in a farm so nature for me is really important and I actually can't imagine starting the day without a walk. I'm an early person, I've learned to be an early person and I love to seeing the sun rise and those first two hours in the morning before the sun gets up because it's it's such a magical time. So I would love for you to share what connected to country means to you but also what our listeners can do to kind of get more out of that, even if they are not perhaps in country? Yes, thanks for asking. It's the most special thing. So it goes back to a Dreamtime story in some ways, and the Dreamtime stories across the country are different, but they they overlap in terms of what they're trying to teach. And Dreamtime stories give us lessons and knowledge. They're not just fairy tales. They're very real and they provide us with guidance. So there's a big Dreamtime story that I'll summarise and basically The big dream time story says once upon a time there was a big ball of water sitting in space and under the water was the land, the mother. And inside the mother's belly, while away the rainbow and serpent moved and the mother started to rise and she rose and rose and and then the waters broke, which is symbolic of childbirth, and the mother was born. So the land came from below the water. That's in our stories where the earth came from. And then when that happened, our father, who was in the sky, the creator father, He'd been looking over the universe forever and he saw the mother rise above the water and he went, wow, I don't know what that is, but that's the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Most beautiful thing I've ever seen, which for those of us that have had the blessing of childbirth, we'll get that. And so the father said, I need to come down and find out what that is. And so he came down and spent time with the mother and they shared time and they got to know each other and they fell in love. And The father didn't want to go back to the sky, but he had responsibilities like we all do. And and many of us go, well, I don't want to do this today, but that's my responsibility. So the father had to go back into the sky 
and he said goodbye to the mother, but he told her he loved her and, and they'd made love and she'd become pregnant. And so from that, she gave birth to all things that are alive. So the birds, the trees, the insects, the fish, whatever you can think of came from that love. And so hence we're all born from love, but also what that story says is we're all brothers and sisters from the one mother, we're all family. So in our way of, of thinking, when we go into the forest or the bush or whatever you call your natural environment, that's the time when you really are going back and you're with your family. And in our stories, the old people say humans were the last ones to be born. And they say the reason we're last is to understand that everything around us is older than us and they're our teachers and they're our older siblings, so we need to go and listen to them. And so the old people say if I go and sit and be still, in the bush and let go of all the noise in my head and just connect with country, all that love will come to me, but so will wisdom, nurture, insight, because our brothers and sisters are all around us. And, and in our way, that's why people rush to the country. When COVID struck, what was it that people missed? They missed the outdoors, they missed connecting to country and they missed each other. That's relationships. And so our relationship with country is really important. And the way the old people explain that, Think about a human mother when the baby's inside her belly. Does that baby have to worry about anything? And the answer is no, that baby is cared for. The human mother feeds that baby through the umbilical cord. And so the old people say when we're born, the cord is disconnected from our mother, but it connects to the mother earth. And the old people say, if I care for mother earth, if I care for my mother earth, if I listen to her, if I learn about her, if I love her, if I dance for her, if I sing for her, if I sing for my mother, if I dance for my mother, if I care for my mother, Mother Earth will always give me what I need. And that has been the case for hundreds of thousands of years. And that's why global warming is such a problem now, because we're not looking after the mother. And if we don't look after the mother, she won't be able to give us all that we need. And in our way, the mother is so special that when we pass and our body is no longer part of this earth and goes into the mother, our spirit at some point can return to be back with the mother, to care for the mother because she is so beautiful. And that's why the countryside is so special. And in the book, I've got some exercises that people can record and work through. And there's a number of people that are, that are recording it. It's been amazing in the last few weeks, the number of people that are telling me they've recorded some of these meditations and it enables them to connect with country and feel that love from the mother and also feel the love of what's around them. And when I talk about these things, I'm not trying to convert anybody into becoming an Aboriginal spiritual person, but you can respect it and also learn from it and be part of it. And so sometimes it's about what is, what is the symbolism of this, about going into the bush and being quiet. We certainly see it as family. Others might just say it's my place of nurture. And so the mother is a beautiful place that cares for us. And one person who interviewed me recently and I said to them, look, you're really wonderful, but you need to do this. And he does it every day. He takes off his shoes and he goes outside and deliberately rubs his feet into the grass. And because he listens, I said, don't be afraid of a bit of mud or a bit of sand or a bit of water. He goes out and, and walks barefoot and all those things so he can feel connected to the mother. And in other spiritualities, sometimes they'll call that grounding. And it's a really good thing to do, going into the garden and getting your hands busy in the dirt. That's connecting to earth as well. So. As I'm speaking, I'm sure there are people there going, yeah, I really do need to get out into the countryside more. And so one of the exercises in the book is to get you to, to think of your special place and then imagine going there in terms of your imagination, but try and get there more often in terms of your real life. Because when you do turn 100, they're the things you'll remember. It won't be how many times I turned up 20 minutes early into the office and got more emails done. Yeah, I think it's the most magical time and I think that's where we get most of the insights and ideas. And I always also say to people when things are a bit challenging, a walk in nature, you never come back feeling worse. Um, most of the time, much, much better. So I think, yeah, I love being out walking in nature and I love you sharing that. So thank you. I could speak to you forever, but I am conscious of time. So <laughs> I want to ask one question that I ask everyone, and that is, apart from your own book, what is one of your favourite books when it comes to personal growth? There are probably two, but no, no one's my favourite. One was really useful. So my favourite book was a book from an American lady, and it's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Her name is Susan Jeffries. I healed myself for many years, but that one just helped me ground myself in terms of 
I still have a tendency to let fear consume me sometimes because habits are habits and things are ingrained in our brain. And that book helped me ground myself. And she had a beautiful chapter on visiting the land of tears that I really liked. And interestingly enough, years ago, I self-published an earlier book called Iridescence and I tried to get it out and about and, and I just didn't have the marketing capability. So I wrote to all the gurus in America asking for their advice on how they got their books out there. And the only one that replied was Susan Jeffers husband and he he was very gracious and he wrote back to me and said unfortunately my wife passed away years ago but then he 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 spent at least four to five hundred words giving me his insights on on what they did and and the main thing he talked about was believe in what you're doing and so that was just a wonderful serendipity that I loved her book anyway and the other book that I really liked was by an Australian guy called The Happiness Trap and I'd have to look up his name but The Happiness Trap in terms of a book It was really smart because we can't be happy all the time and that's why I don't really talk about finding happiness. I talk about finding contentment because we can be happy and that's great, but there are times when we will have challenges. There'll be times when we're feeling a little bit fatigued. There'll be times when we do need to nurture ourselves where we may not feel happy, but we can still know that it's okay. We're contented with where we are and we can ground ourselves in that and the happiness traps certainly help me. Yeah. It's a great book. Thank you. I will link to these two books in the show notes, but the, for anyone listening, it's the, by Dr. Russ Harris, I think. Really good book as well. That was amazing. I just have one final question, and that is knowing what you know now, what would you say to your younger self, say maybe you know in your teenage years in terms of advice? The advice I'd give my younger self would be to learn about Aboriginal culture to start with because then I would suddenly have this compendium of wonderful knowledge. But beyond that, in terms of a simple comment, my my comment to my younger self would be to respect others and listen to them but have faith in your footsteps and always follow your personal dream. That doesn't mean you disconnect from others but walk, walk your footsteps because I certainly did that. So I spent many years feeling the pangs of rejection in terms of relationships, dating, social networking, all those things where I always felt like an outsider and it's because I didn't really feel confident in who I was and had such poor self-esteem. So it would be loving yourself and believing in your footsteps and that would be the comment I give to people of all ages now. Go deep inside and learn to love yourself because you truly are special. I mean, the odds of flipping a coin heads and tails is one in two the odds of winning lotto is one in two with eight zeros. The odds of being born is one in six with 100 zeros after it. It is an absolute statistical miracle that we are born. And so that's something to embrace, to go, wow, it's not just an accident I'm born, it's a miracle. And I'm going to love the real me and I'm going to find the real me and I'm going to believe in the real me. Mm, that was the most beautiful way of ending this super inspiring podcast thank you so very much for for sharing your wisdom not just here but in your book i will obviously link the book for everyone it's a must read and there were so many things that i wanted to talk about but there was just not enough time but might have you back in the future and i just wanted to say a massive thank you and i look forward to meet you in person at some stage and perhaps do some more learning about the aboriginal culture because i've know very little but certainly learned more by reading your book so thank you. Wonderful and best wishes and blessings, everybody. Wow, that was so inspiring. I could seriously have spoken to Paul all day. There, are, He has so much wisdom to share and there is so much wisdom in his book that are so aligned with me and I hope you felt the same and I really do hope you will read his book. It's so good, so good. If you are ready for your own dreaming path and not sure where to start, I'm actually holding free workshops starting next week. So if you are listening to the episode at the time of releasing it, just go to yourdreamlifestartshere.com and register. It's free and I got four different times and dates. And if you are listening to this at another time, I'm holding free workshops frequently. So just register to my newsletter and I will email you when they're on next. I am back next week. Until then, don't forget to dream big. I'll see you then.